and welcome to the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. I'm Mark Rees, and on each episode, I investigate a different, weird, and wonderful subject. And on this special festive episode, we are all going to the pub. Yes, I am taking you all to the pub to look at some scary and some not-so-scary Christmas folklore. On the one hand, they'll be singing and dancing and Christmas cheer, a good old heartwarming seasonal get-together. But on the other hand, there's also an eerier side to these traditions, with a mysterious hag of the night who stalked the festive streets of Wales, and even a horse-skulled visitor that isn't the Mary Lloyd. Yes, you heard that right, we are going to look at another variation of this wassailing tradition that also involves a horse's skull and might just might be even more terrifying a sight than the Mary Lloyd herself. And so, on that ominous note, to begin at the beginning. And for this festive episode, we are going to catch up with Wirt Sykes, one of my favourite folklorists and a regular on this podcast, the American folklorist who swapped New York for Cardiff in the 19th century, where he was based as the American consul for Wales. And it's lucky he did swap New York for Cardiff because he became one of the most important figures in the ghosts and folklore of Wales. He travelled the land of his adopted home and he recorded accounts of strange fairy folk, Taloth Tig, dancing in the moonlights. He spoke of pesky poltergeists haunting the darkened mines and all manner of myths and legends along the way. But Sykes wasn't all work and no play. Or maybe I should say he wasn't all ghosts and folklore and no play. Sometimes he combined the two. Sometimes he combined work with pleasure. And when he stopped off in the many pubs and the inns on his travels, he often spoke with the locals and gathered his strange tales from them over a frothing pint of ale in front of a roaring fire. And this episode begins by focusing on one such night, because Sykes on his travels popped into a Welsh pub at the most magical time of year, and he picked up more than just ghost stories. He effectively walked into what was a Welsh Christmas works do. There was drinking and there was dancing and there was drinking and there was singing and there was drinking and drinking and drinking. By the sounds of it, it was absolute carnage, but carnage in a good way. Everybody's having fun, to quote Naughty Holder. Everybody's having fun until until they passed out, I guess. Just your typical Christmas night out in Wales. As anyone who has walked down Wine Street in Swansea on Black Friday will know, it was a little bit hectic in this pub. But besides drinking, and there was a lot of drinking, the Welsh are, as you might know, rather famed for their singing. In fact, Wales is known as the land of song, and it was given this moniker during this period. It was in the 19th century that Wales became known as the land of song, which just happened to coincide with Sykes' time in the country from New York. 
And this was a time when the Welsh, the good Christian working folk of Wales, could be heard singing from the chapels and churches at all times of the year, but at this time, the holiest time to mark the birth of Jesus Christ. This is when the voices really raised up to heaven. This is when they were at their loudest. And the Welsh weren't just famous for their singing on Welsh soil. They were known across the border in England, throughout Britain and Europe and the world. The male voice choirs found fame. They were winning competitions in London and further afield. And while they aren't shouted about as much as they should be, the women were also travelling to some far-flung places to sing in both mixed and female choirs. And they were particularly appreciated in America. And Sykes tells us that this love of song in the land of song is something that you can feel in the air. It's almost tangible. It's all around you in the Welsh air. He was left with the impression that song was something that was simply unavoidable in Wales. It was there like the air and the ground underneath your feet. And this would have been particularly noticeable in places where people congregated together to have a good time, such as those many churches and chapels where the faithful flock to but also, of course, the pubs where people flock to for other reasons. And to quote Sykes, who observed this firsthand and then recorded his thoughts about it, he said that, in one aspect, the Welsh people may be spoken of as a people whose lives are passed in the indulgence of their love for music and dancing. The air of Wales seems always full of music. In the Christmas season, there is an unending succession of concerts and miscellaneous entertainments of which music forms a part. And you cannot enter an inn where a few are gathered together without the imminent probability that one or more will break forth into song. And I love that description. It's almost like a warning. You have to be on your guard because if you walk into a Welsh pub or a Welsh inn, there is a good chance that no matter how many people are there, it could be one man in the corner with a dog. There is a good chance they might burst out into song at any moment. And not just any old racket. This isn't just drunk people belting out any old noise. Well, maybe some of them were. But to continue to return to Sykes, and he says... By this is not meant a general musical howl, such as is apt to be evoked from a room full of men of any nationality when somewhat under the influence of the rosy god. And that's another description I love, rosy god. But good set songs with good Welsh or English words to them, executed with respect for their work by the vocalists and listened to with a respect by the rest of the company. So Sykes is telling us that even when drunk, you can depend on the Welsh to sing a good song with good lyrics in tune in both Welsh and English, which he says is something other nationalities cannot do. And I'd like to put a nice big disclaimer here because Sykes is about to discuss some of those other nationalities and the next quote does have the potential to alienate 95% of my listeners. So just to be crystal clear, 
These are not my views. These are not my words. I am merely quoting from a New Yorker who was in Cardiff in the 19th century. And as such, his opinions and his stereotypes might not be valid today. But I will simply quote the man and you can make of them what you will. And Sykes, not me, Sykes says that when an Englishman is drunk, he is belligerent. When a Frenchman is drunk, he is amorous. When an Italian is drunk, he is loquacious. When a Scotsman is drunk, he is argumentative. When a German is drunk, he is sleepy. When an American is drunk, he brags. And when a Welshman is drunk, he sings. And I have no idea how accurate those descriptions are. Well, except for maybe the Welsh one, I can confirm that we do like a sing-song when we've had one too many. As for the other countries, if you are listening from any of them, or if you are still listening, I should say, after Sykes has potentially insulted you there, but if you are still listening, it would be great to know if you can confirm or deny how accurate those descriptions might be. And personally, I think I must be half Italian and half half German because I do talk a load of rubbish and fall asleep after drinking. Not that I've had a drink for some time now, but if I were, I would be talking rubbish and falling asleep uh, a bit, a bit like I do in this podcast, really. Who needs, who needs alcohol when it happens anyway? But to get back to Sykes, and it's not just drinking and singing, because when it comes to the Welsh, and in this case, specifically Welsh men, according to Sykes, although I think this could certainly apply to the women too, but when it comes to the Welsh, sometimes he dances, but he does not do himself credit as a dancer under these circumstances. When I speak of dancing, I do not refer to those wooden paces and inflections which pass for dancing in society, and which are little more than an amiable pretext for bringing in contact human elements which are slow to mix when planted in chairs about a room. So what Sykes is telling us there in some rather flowery language is that as well as singing, the Welsh also love to dance. But unlike the singing, which is revered around the world, their dancing isn't the kind of thing that's going to be impressing people in London. In the sense that they don't dance, they don't follow the rules of dance that you're supposed to in high society. And I'm picturing those kind of dances that you see in period dramas, the kind of dances Jane Austen characters might be, might be flirting at. The Welsh, according to Sykes at least, don't mess around with that polite dancing nonsense. Instead, it's a little bit more anarchic, I guess you could say. It's a bit more of a free-for-all. And to continue, he says specifically, I refer to the individual dancing of men, men dancing on their own, who do not dance for the purpose of touching women's hands or indulging in small talk, perish the thought. They do it purely for the purpose of dancing. It is dancing for the sake of dancing, and touching the soft hands of women is purely a distraction. They are totally committed, totally devoted to the cause of dancing, and apply themselves seriously and skillfully to their work, to wit the scientific performance of a jig. So, 
When the Welshman dances, he dances a jolly jig that isn't all about manners and politeness and some excuse to touch a woman's hand. It's an intense individual performance that requires a heck of a lot of skill, but because it isn't concerned with the opinions of high society, it might not be looked at in the same way by the rest of the world, but for those performing it, it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to get it just right. Now, I did tease you at the start of this episode with a creature that might be even stranger than the Mary Lloyd, and that will be coming up very soon. But as we're talking about a good time in the pubs with drinking and singing and dancing, there is a form of dancing with a connection to the Mary Lloyd, to the traditional Mary Lloyd festivities. And very quickly, for those who might be unfamiliar with the Mary Lloyd, and if you are unfamiliar with the Mary Lloyd, where have you been these last few years? I've recorded a number of Christmas episodes that you can go back and check out to find out more. But very briefly, just to get everyone up to speed, the Mary Lloyd, which is spelt M-A-R-I, Mary Lloyd, L-W-Y-D, is commonly accepted to mean grey mare, the grey mare in English. But as I've explained on other episodes, it might mean something totally different. But for the purposes of this, Mary Lloyd, grey mare, is a wassailing tradition in which a group of men and women nowadays, but in the 19th century, traditionally men, dressed up and carried the Mary, which is the name given to a horse's skull on the end of a stick that was held by somebody covered in a sheet or a sackcloth. And they carried this, what was effectively a hobby horse, around the neighbours' houses to challenge them to a playful battle in rhyme on the doorstep. And the whole point of this back and forth is for the Mary and that group of people outside to gain entry inside and using rhyme they are effectively pleading they plead for entry they say we are we are poor christian folk in need of sustenance please let us in for cake and ale whereas the people inside try their best to repel them by pleading poverty by saying no times have been hard for us also we don't have enough cake and ale to spare now this goes back and forth until eventually unless the homeowners are particularly mean the mary lloyd and the gang are allowed inside they are rewarded with that cake and ale or whatever goodies they are given and in return they leave the home with good luck for the following year now, there is a bit more to it than just that. It's a slightly convoluted custom for me to wrap up in two minutes, and it's also shrouded in mystery slightly. But as mentioned, if you are slightly perplexed right now, if you are sitting there thinking, what the heck is this mad Welsh bloke going on about horses' skulls for? There are earlier episodes you can go back and check out for more. But back to this episode, because... As mentioned, there was a form of dancing that was on display in the pubs at Christmas time in Wales, and it also has a connection to the Mary Lloyd. And it's more commonly thought of as something that is done on the other side of the border. This is more commonly associated with England, and that is a very distinctive form of dancing called Morris dancing. Yes, 
Morris dancing and Morris dancers were dancing away in Wales just like you might find the Mary Lloyd in England and these Morris dancers were not restricted to the pubs in fact they might accompany the Mary Lloyd through the streets and there was for some years in recent times a wonderful festival that did combine the two and that was the annual Mary Lloyd and Morris dancing festival in Chepstow that would meet at the bridge that connected Wales with England over the River Wye and into Gloucestershire. But back to Wales and back to our night in the pub and to quote once more we are told that the Morris dancers formed a merry throng in the Christmas festivities. The party consisted of three, seven or nine men dressed as gaily and grotesquely as possible. Caps of any kind of animal skin and short jackets were worn, all decorated with gay knots of ribbon. Sometimes the head and brush of a fox were prominent. Bells and any jingling ornaments were worn around the wrists and ankles, and frequently one or two of the party appeared as Megan, a hag of the night in female dress. And I bet nobody expected that twist at the end. We're getting this pretty standard description of Morris dancers, except for the fact that some of them dress up as this hag from the night. But the description itself does share a number of similarities with the way the Mary Lloyd herself was decorated, decked out with colourful ribbons and bells. You can also see elements of the traditional Morris dancers. Morris dancers are, of course, known for jangling those bells and banging their sticks together. And there's also another link with the natural world, with animals, with the animal world, this time with foxes instead of horses. But maybe the part that really sticks out from that description, for me at least is that one of the party or two of the party might appear as Megan, a hag of the night, who traditionally would be portrayed by a man or by men, a bit like Shakespearean productions in the old days. No women on stage, they will be portrayed by men. But in this case, it would be men dressed up as this hag of the night. And to continue, this group of Morris dancers with the hag of the night, this party would be accompanied by a harpist or a fiddler, somebody to provide the music and torchbearers. And they went house to house to dance a peculiar jig in return for money. So whereas the Mary Lloyd party might go about challenging people to this battle in rhyme in exchange for warmth and hospitality and cake and ale, the Morris dancers would instead dance this jig which is said to be peculiar to Wales, during which the feet kept time with the music, and occasionally two of the dancers would hold each other's hands and spin round and round in bewildering fashion. They'd spin until they were dizzy. A Welsh jig and an old style hornpipe were included in the amusements and these were often cleverly performed by experts. So these Morris dancers weren't just a bunch of drunks from the pub, they were experts. And Sykes concludes this description of Morris dancing by telling us that a dance resembling the modern cakewalk was also given. And by modern cakewalk, this was of course in the 19th century. It's less modern nowadays. I don't know how many of you dance the cakewalk today. I don't know how many of you have heard of the cakewalk today, but it is a 
two-step dance by all accounts from what I can gather the cakewalk but again this is an example of people going door to door in their community at this time of year and providing some form of entertainment in return for some kind of reward and maybe it's not as scary or as weird as the Mary Lloyd there's no horse skull involved in this but you know if you have a phobia of Morris dancing it might freak you out if they turned up but this is people going door to door providing entertainment in return for a reward in this case for money instead of cake and ale or maybe there's a combination going on which does nicely bring me to that other version that lesser known alternative to the Mary Lloyd that I mentioned right at the start of this episode and to wrap up this festive episode we are going to look at the incredibly curious creature known as a daring pig Lloyd or Lloyd the Adairin Pig Lloyd. And yes, if you're wondering what that means, the last word is indeed Lloyd or Lloyd, which, as with the Mary Lloyd or Mary Lloyd, is Welsh for the word grey and is assumed to mean grey in this context. And the three words together, Adairin Pig Lloyd, and this isn't a literal translation, but in English, Adairin Pig Lloyd is known as the bird with the grey beak. And this bird with the grey beak is sometimes accompanied by Morris dancers, but at other times walks the streets alone. And what makes this potentially creepier than the Mary Lloyd for me is that whereas the Mary Lloyd was carried around by a group of boisterous and increasingly intoxicated men having a good time and singing songs this is an eerie creature that likes to sneak up on people and we are told that this creature this exhibition consisted of the skeleton frame of a horse's head with artificial eyes and ears the head was decorated with ribbons colored paper and almost any kind of finery. So, so far, it's all very Mary Lloyd sounding. It's a horse's skull decked out in ribbons and bells. But instead of being carried on a stick, this was carried upon the head and shoulders of a man wearing a long, fantastic robe adorned with tinsel so in this case the horse's skull is worn almost like a mask i'm assuming a mask that covers your head by a man in a white robe adorned in tinsel which in fairness doesn't sound like the scariest of disguises ever but let's go with it for now maybe it was scary tinsel back then but a horse's skull on the head a white sheet and tinsel covering this creature and we are told that it was the duty of this man to imitate the actions of a horse and much amusement was caused when the creature kicked or reared and when it wasn't alone much like the Mary Lloyd the horse was attended by a groom who held the reins and kept the animal within bounds this was often difficult but productive of much fun and merriment so again as i've spoken about before with the mary lloyd a lot of it was this performance where the horse is playfully acting up and the groom is playfully pretending to keep it under control but of course that never quite works out and it's all a bit slapstick and after going through the performance the groom placed a hat in the horse's mouth for any contribution that might be bestowed so they gathered any money collected into that hat and the procession was joined by men carrying burning brands 
And nothing says Merry Christmas like men carrying burning brands. And that is the tale of the other Mary Lloyd that was out and about in the wilds of Wales at Christmas time. And maybe I shouldn't use the past tense. Maybe, like the Mary Lloyd, it is still out there today. And if you did want to try and catch to bump into the Adairin Peeg Lloyd, we are told that traditionally it appeared on Old Christmas Day. So in January, again, much like the Mary Lloyd. And maybe it won't come as a surprise to you that as scary as these creatures might potentially be when you bump into them, even if they are wearing tinsel, we are told that they always enjoyed a good dance and a good song. Well, they are Welsh monsters after all. And on that note, we've reached the end of another episode of the Ghosts and Folklore podcast, and we've also reached the end of another year on the Ghosts and Folklore podcast. The next time you hear my voice, it will be a shiny new year. And if you don't want to miss any of those episodes next year and you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And if you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate it, review it, like it, tell all your friends about it. And if you really enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast going forward, you can treat me to a coffee, a Christmas coffee via my website, which is always very much appreciated. As well as this podcast, I've also written several books about similar weird and wonderful subjects, the most recent being Paranormal Cardiff, which is available from all good bookshops, offline and on. And if you'd like more Ghosts and Folklore, you can follow me on social media. I'm on all the main sites, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, etc, etc, etc. And before I leave you, regular listeners might have noticed this episode for the first time time ever was slightly delayed. I did manage to upload a little explainer from my phone a couple of weeks ago just to say, bear with me, this episode is going to be a little bit later than normal because without bothering you all with my, my Christmas time woes, but I had some very big technical difficulties. I think I mentioned my, my microphone exploded, which is why I was recording on my phone, but I also lost the computer that I used to record this on. I've got different, different machines that are more powerful than others, so the most powerful one that is used for recording and editing bit the dust and even if I did manage to record and edit it I lost my broadband it was technical problem after technical problem and it's not even restricted to this podcast I've even lost my microwave and I am just jinxed when it comes to technical things at the moment so if you do see me out and about this Christmas time keep me well away from any new technical devices you might have if you've got a fancy new tablet or phone or console or anything like that that from Santa, from Sean Corn, don't let me even even look at the things. But the good news is I'm nearly back to where I was. I've solved about three, maybe four of the five issues that I had with the podcast. So I've solved enough to certainly get this episode out the door and I am raring to go into the new year. So... Thank you very much for listening, not just to this episode, but all of the bonkers episodes I've recorded this year. It's been quite an eventful year, really, and I was very pleased that we were able to do a, a live, as it were, a live ghost hunt from a spooky pub cellar in Swansea. And there is also video footage out there of that, if you can handle watching as well as listening to this kind of nonsense, where I was joined by a group of Wales's greatest ghost hunters to see what we could find. And I hope to do 
do much more of that in the future. So before I wish you all the best for the season and let you get on with the rest of your day, I would like to thank every person who has supported and interacted with me this year. I've met some amazing people from around the world as a direct result of this podcast. People listen to this podcast and they get in touch if they're coming to Wales or if I'm going to somewhere. And it's been absolutely, its I've said it before, I'll say it again, it blows my brain the, the reach this podcast gets, the amount of people in so many different places that listen to this podcast. It is incredible. Long may it continue. And, and not just in person, online too. The people, the lovely people who get in touch via social media and things. And of course, the people who come to the events and come to the talks and come to the shows and come to the sign-ins. It really has been lovely and long may it continue. But anyway, that's enough. Thank yous. We've all got Christmas to get on with. So it just leaves me to say, have an absolutely fantastic Christmas and a wonderful new year. Nadolig Llawen a Blwyddyn Newydd Dda. I've been Mark Rees. This has been my Ghosts and Folklore podcast beaming to you from Wales to the world. And remember, if you do get an unexpected visit from a horse-skulled creature this year, maybe this one won't be repelled by simple rhyming. Maybe this one just wants a good dance and a sing-song. Until next time, God bless us, everyone. No star. Thank you.